0: What a great lesson and study it's been uh, for us. I don't know about you, but I always enjoy these uh, journeys through the books of the Bible. Acts 24, we'll get into this chapter tonight. Have you ever been uh, falsely accused? If If you have, I would suspect that it's one of the hardest experiences you've ever went through. We naturally shrink from criticism, even if it's justified or if somebody makes an accusation, that's even true. It's hard enough to take it then. But when the charge is false, when it's completely a false accusation, our natural sense of justice makes it almost unbearable for us to receive that. When you find yourself in that situation, often the questions will outnumber the answers. How do we respond? What's the Christian way to come back on that? What are we to do? It's a time that Defines not only our own commitment to the Lord, it also defines our friends in the ministry often when there's a false accusation. Now, we can learn a lot about how we should respond from the chapter we're going to read tonight, or part of the chapter. Uh, The whole chapter more deals with it, but we'll only read a partial and then kind of work through it. But here you have one of God's greatest servants, the Apostle Paul. He's been misunderstood, he's been unappreciated, he's even been abused by the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. He was falsely accused by some Jews as he exited the temple. He was the object of mistaken identity. Uh, He was mistaken as a notorious criminal. These are in the previous chapters leading up to this that we've already went through. But it seems like of late in Paul's life, everywhere he goes, especially in Jerusalem, he was just misunderstood. His motives are challenged. And that's another biggie in our life. When our motives are questioned, It undermines everything we're about and everything that we're trying to do. So how do we respond when we are falsely accused? I want to preach tonight for a few minutes on, but wait, I'm innocent. Read with me Acts chapter 24, verse 1. After five days, Ananias, the high priest, descended with the elders and with a certain orator named Tertullus, who informed the governor against Paul. When he was called forth, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence. We accept it always in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. The the, uh, flattery is what he was laying on thick here to Felix. Notwithstanding that I be not further tedious unto thee, I pray thee that thou wouldest hear us of the clemency a few words. For we have found this man a pestilent fellow, and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, who also have gone about to profane the temple, whom we took and would have judged according to our law. But the chief captain, Lysias, came upon us, and with great violence took him away out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come unto thee, by examining of whom thyself mayest take knowledge of all these things whereof we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, saying that these things were so. Then Paul... After that, the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, for as much as I know that thou has been of many years a judge unto this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. And we'll read some more verses following that in a moment, but tonight we'll talk about, but wait, I'm innocent. Father, thank you for this time. We pray bless the reading of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul finds himself in a Roman court. Once again, he's defending himself against false charges. This time, basically, it's a Jewish Supreme Court, or from the Jewish Supreme Court. Now, what should we do when we face a situation like this? When we are accused, should we defend ourselves? Should we just lie down and take it? Or are those our only two options? Are we to be a doormat or are we to be a fighter when it comes to having a false accusation leveled at us? By looking at Paul's actions, I want to see three things we ought to do in response False accusation. First of all, listen carefully to your accusers. The high priest Ananias came with the leaders of the Jewish Supreme Court to prosecute Paul in front of Felix. Felix was the governor of the region around Israel. They brought along with them a man named Tertullus. The Bible calls him a certain orator. Today we would call him a prosecuting attorney. He was a lawyer. Like many lawyers even today, Uh, and especially in that day, Tertullus was open to the highest bidder. We don't, nor have people ever, really had that high of a regard for lawyers. I don't know if you've noticed that. A woman and her daughter were visiting the grave of of the little girl's grandmother. And on their way back and looking at some of the gravestones, the girl asked, Mommy, do they ever bury two people in the same grave? Mom said, no, of course they don't bury two people in one grave. Why would you think that? And she said, well, the tombstone back there said, here lies a lawyer and a good man. Uh, Seems like there would have been two people involved in that. Uh, That's what we often think of lawyers. But Tertullus was a Roman lawyer, and he didn't care if the charges against Paul were true or not. Uh, Just the, the Jerusalem leaders wouldn't know Roman law well enough to prosecute him themselves, and so they hired Tertullus to do it for them. And just like a lawyer, he begins with some flowery introductory remarks trying to butter up the judge uh, in Felix there, verses 2 through 4. And then in verses 5 through 6 that we read, Tertullus brings three charges against Paul. The first, he says, is that Paul was a seditious troublemaker. He calls him a pestilent fellow. That means to be a pest or a plague to the people. He says he was a threat to law and order. He accuses him of stirring up trouble. He is also referred to him here as a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world. A mover of sedition means that he was a traitor against Rome. This was a serious political charge, and if proven, it was enough to get Paul the death penalty. Now notice that even though these are Jews bringing charges about Paul, they're bringing him to a Roman leader in Felix, and so they are... He's being very careful that all of these charges include a political charge. The second charge against him was that he was a ringleader of a new religious sect. This was a serious charge, especially uh, made also to include political implications because we know that uh, we understand, as we see, we've looked at the whole book of Acts, we understand that Christianity is kind of a natural outcome of Judaism. It is, a, it is a, an outgrowth, you could say, of Judaism. Uh, Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so Christianity really fulfilled the law. It's not like it was antagonist to it. It fulfilled what came before. But Tertullus made it look like a new religion, a, a cult, so to speak, by using the word sect. And so Judaism was a permitted religion. This was part of the deal between the Jews and the Romans, and, and Judaism was permitted, but any new Uh, sect, any new cult would not be tolerated. And so if Tertullus could convince Felix that Paul was the insider of a new religion, he'd be in big trouble. This is also a very sneaky charge made against Paul. The third charge was that Paul attempted to desecrate the temple in Jerusalem. This also had political ramifications. The Romans gave the Jews permission to execute any Gentile that went inside the barrier of the temple. Now, you remember back a couple of chapters ago, uh, Paul had went in with four or three others, and when he came out, they accused him of taking Gentiles in, even though that was not the case. So if he had done that, it would have not only violated Jewish law, but Roman law as well, because they were constantly trying to keep the tension down between them and the Jews. It certainly helped if there was a riot. And as we know, there was a riot after that, uh, which Paul was rescued from. Now, sometimes we get the wrong idea and therefore make a false assumption, and that can lead to a false accusation. A lot of accusations and even church trouble and trouble between people, if you track it down and if people care enough to talk it out, it often starts with a false assumption story is told of two men who worked in the audit department of a large bank. They made an overnight trip to a distant branch and so had to drive through the night to get there early and uh, be there on time to do this audit. And before they went, they had breakfast in a local restaurant. And so they're talking and the chief auditor says to his partner, first we'll hit the tellers and then we'll get the vault." They arrived at the bank a few hours later only to be promptly arrested by police who had surrounded the whole bank. What happened is that the police captain had just happened to be eating at that restaurant, was sitting at the table behind them and had overheard him say, first we'll hit the tellers, then we'll get the vault." The police captain made an assumption about the situation. It was actually a good assumption based on what he heard, not realizing they were auditors and they were talking about doing something that was actually their job. So we can do that. We can make false assumptions about somebody or here's something that we take wrong and we can make an accusation or receive an accusation that is based on a false assumption. This is not one of those times. This was a pack of lies that they had come up with. They would basically trumped up these charges against Paul. There's not any truth in any of what Tertullus is saying. The Jewish leaders were determined to silence Paul permanently. And this is maddening when you're on the receiving end of it. When you're on the receiving end of a false accusation, it's tremendously difficult to retain your Christian character. You ever notice that? Really hard when you're taking, especially if there are other people involved, to hear gross untruths about you coming from somebody else's mouth, especially if you know that they know it's all a bunch of lies. This is really hard to stomach. Now, Paul is sitting here, Listening to this. This is an extreme injustice. Paul did not belong in chains. He hadn't done anything wrong. Uh, he did, he had been misunderstood. He had been lied about. He had been falsely charged. Not only that, just last chapter, remember, 40 men took a hunger strike to kill the man. He, they wanted to kill Paul and said, We're not going to eat or drink anything until we kill him. These people were out for blood. And again, probably, probably you and I not that I know of, have had anybody take a hunger strike to kill us, or until they kill us. But on a lesser scale, you ever received unfair treatment like this? Probably all of us have on some level. Unfair accusations, uh, wrong things or untrue things said about us. Imagine how you would feel in that courtroom that day. And yet we don't really have to imagine that much because we can probably think back to times in our own life Where things were said about us that were simply untrue. So, I can imagine the desire that Paul had boiling down inside of him to jump up and just scream, liar, 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 to the person that's talking. We have that desire sometimes. But here sits Paul, letting this vileness air itself. Let me insert something here too. I believe Paul was the type of Christian, because of what else we see in how he writes his epistles, I believe that if there was truth to any of this, I believe he would have owned up. I believe Paul would have, uh, owned up to it and made it right. And this is really hard to do. It is hard for us to, uh, to, to own up to any truth in an accusation, even if it's mixed in with some truth in, in the middle of falsehood. So if you have, uh, some hard accusations leveled at you and it's 10% true, we're not inclined to deal with the 10%. We're inclined to fight the 90. Amen. And so this is, uh, Paul, though there was no truth here, but I believe that Paul would have owned up if there was. And that leads me to ask you this question. Are you able to do a self-examination in the face of a verbal assault? Somebody's coming at you, or somebody levels some accusation, are you able to do a self-examination? Think about that question, because that's important for all of us. People generally feel enough anger when they're wrongly accused that outweighs any personal examination. In other words, our defense walls fly up and we don't even think about looking at whether there's any truth in the accusation. We just automatically want to defend ourselves and often come out swinging. One of the hardest things I've ever had to do, and you probably as well, is to ask the question, is there any truth in what they're saying? If if there are accusations leveled at us. And if you are trying, by the way, if you're trying to do anything for God, if you're trying to serve God or you're trying to serve, especially in any ministry, you're going to get accusations. It's just going to happen. It's a part of life. It's a, because people will people and we are working with people. And so that question, asking ourselves, is there any truth in what they're saying? That is incredibly difficult to do when the guns are aimed at you and accusation is coming. Is there? If there is any truth to it, does the falsehood negate the recognition of truth? So somebody giving you let's say it's 50-50, half of it's a bunch of garbage, half of it's true. Does the falsehood excuse you from having to face up to the truth? I think not. I think it's a, a nobody likes criticism, nobody likes to be accused, nobody likes to be attacked, but there are this is a great time for us to self-examine as well. Proverbs 15:10 Says, correction is grievous unto him that forsaketh the way, and he that hateth reproof shall die. Now, none of us like reproof. Here's the thing about reproof. It usually does not come packaged in honey. I've noticed. Reproof, uh, accusations, they don't usually come, uh, in a bunch of sweetness, in a sweet package. Usually they are, uh, in anger or in, uh, usually it's ugly usually accusation when it comes is ugly. And we don't like ugly. And I'm not saying ugly is ever okay. None of us should ever be ugly with one another. But uh, I always, I don't always succeed in this, but I make an honest effort to hear it out. If there's something coming my direction, is there any truth in what they're saying? In fact, uh, I can think of several times in my life where this has happened and where there's some things being said and I know there's a lot of falsehood in it and then the and I'll ask somebody else, a trusted Christian friend or somebody, um, uh, a servant I'm serving with, uh, do you see this in my life? And uh, it's a good thing for us to do a, an internal examination. Paul listened before responding. That is hard to do. When people are leveling accusation at you, especially if it's mostly or all false, it's hard to sit down and take it and just hear it. Here's another thing we ought to consider. Accusations, more often than not, have at least some truth in them. Even if they're blown out of proportion. Even if they're delivered in a bad spirit. Usually, accusations have some truth in them. And criticism can be a great source of growth in our lives if we're willing to listen. If we can just be humble enough to listen and hear it out, step back and be honest instead of coming back with a knee-jerk reaction of defense. This uh, is, again, it's hard to do, but uh, it, it, our pride, you know, rears up. Whenever something comes our direction, uh, our pride jumps up. By the way, just in case you're sitting there thinking, man, who accused pastor last week? It, nothing's happened, okay? <laughs> We've got nothing in the wings. I'm just, uh, we're at Acts chapter 24. I didn't write the book. It comes in progression here, all right? So, uh, this helps us. But I think all of us deal with this in different times of our life. So, instead of allowing our pride to jump up in immediate defensiveness, if there's any truth in what's being said, we ought to immediately ask for forgiveness and make it right. At, what, what's so hard at, about that is because we tend to, as they often will blow up, uh, the, the blow out of proportion what they're saying, we also blow out of proportion the falsehood that we're hearing. And we need to focus ourselves on if there's any truth in it. But as I said a moment ago, in this particular case, in Acts 24, this incident with Paul was a completely unfair one. This happens once in a while, not so often, but once in a while, because people are people, we find ourselves in a situation where we say, but wait, I'm innocent. (laughs) None of this is true. What do we do in the face of criticism, the face of an accusation, if we are innocent of all the charges? Well, you do what Paul did next. First of all, Paul waited and heard them out. Secondly, if innocent, cheerfully make your defense. Now, look at what the Bible says in verse 10. I think this is amazing. I uh, The last part of 10, verse 10, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Paul did not just lay down and say nothing, and take a verbal beating unjustly. He was wronged, and after listening to the charges, he knew he was totally innocent of them. And so he gave a vigorous defense. I do not believe that as Christians we are called to be doormats, and just be walked on and stepped on by everyone. Sometimes we think because we're humble that we need to do that. You you can be humble and still uh, stand up for truth. Amen? And so he gave a vigorous defense. Now, notice two things about his defense here that's important. Number one, the substance of his defense. He refuted every charge with the most powerful weapon he had. That was truth. That's what he talked about, Truth. To the charge of being a seditious troublemaker, he answers in verse 11, because that thou mayest understand there are yet twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem for to worship, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues nor in the city. No, neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. So verse 12, he points out in all the time that he had been there, that his enemies could not point to one time that he had caused any trouble. Not one time he got into a fight with anybody. And then verse 13, he basically asks, where's the proof? Where, where's the witnesses for this? He, he, he says, I wasn't in the temple rabble rousing. I wasn't doing these different things that are being said of me. I wasn't in the synagogues or in the city stirring up trouble. If I was, where are your witnesses? Who can point to a time that I did any of these things? Now, remember, the Roman court wasn't a kangaroo court like the one they trumped up to charge against Jesus. Remember that? Jesus was in a Jewish court. And they said all kinds of falsehoods and lies about him didn't have any proof. And they acted on these false accusations against Christ. But here, uh, you, you had to produce some proof. And Paul's accusers did not have any. Paul knew it. What's more, his accusers knew it. To the second charge that he was a ringleader of an illegal sect or an illegal cult, Paul made a very smart move. Look at what he did in verse 14. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the unjust and the just. Now, I don't know if you caught what Paul did here. This is genius. In essence, he's saying, they call me the ringleader of an illegal religion, but I believe all the things in the law and the prophets that my accusers believe. I'm not discounting any of that. You see, we and we still do this today. We're not We're not taking the Old Testament and throwing it out. The Old Testament is still a valid part of our Bible. We're just saying that, Jesus fulfilled all those ceremonial things that the Jews did. And he goes on, I also believe that in the resurrection of the dead, which they themselves believe. And so Paul is saying, if I'm guilty of a false cult, my accusers are guilty of it too. I believe the same things they do concerning the resurrection, the law, and the prophets. What Paul did was tell the truth about the Christian faith. Christianity was the logical and God-ordained outgrowth of the biblical Judaism. To try to make it something that it wasn't was an unfair characterization. One of the essentials of the faith was the resurrection. And the Pharisees believed exactly like Paul. The only difference was they didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. So they they were uh, different on that, which of course is a major point to us. But Paul knew it wasn't a point at all to the Romans. They didn't care about whether they disagreed with one man's resurrection. But the belief and the uh, religions were enough alike. Paul's Drawing out these likenesses. All right, to the last charge that he tried to desecrate the temple. He responds in verse 17. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings, whereupon certain Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with the multitude nor with the tumult, who ought to have been here before thee and object if they had aught against me. So Paul gives a true account of what he was doing in the temple. I went to worship. I was doing my thing. I was doing the right thing. If I'm guilty of desecrating the temple, those who saw me do it, where are they? They ought to be here to testify against me. Verse 19. If they had any real evidence, they would have brought witnesses. Having no witnesses was a stark uh, witness to the flimsiness of their case. So what can we learn then from the substance of Paul's testimony? We learn that Paul fought false accusations. Now this is important. Not with anger or emotion, but with the truth. This is so important when it comes to accusations of any kind. The greatest weapon you have against false accusations is the truth. And yet, the first response from us is often not the truth, but anger and defensiveness. And so, we, these, by the way, Accusers usually depend on the fact that you'll get angry and defensive. Usually that's exactly what they want so that they can work on that level. But this was the substance of Paul's defense, truth. That was the substance. And Paul used it in a calm way and then looked secondly at the spirit of Paul's defense. The substance was the truth, the spirit in verse 10. The last part, I just read it. I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. I notice here, Paul did not get angry. He did not say, how dare you say those things about me? Why I never? And start into a tirade. He just said, stood up. I I picture, I like to picture scenes in the Bible. I think he smiled up, stood up, big old smile on his face. I do cheerfully answer. These uh, Cheerfully answer for myself. That's what you do when you're cheerful, smile. You're not angry not mad, you're not seething, you're not growling, you're not gritting your teeth, you're just uh, smiling. He wasn't seething with resentment. He didn't allow his pride to get in the way. He was not filled with righteous indignation. How could you? How dare you? Though he had every right to feel those emotions, and we often feel we have the right to feel them too. It's, it was unfair. He could have been angry, but he didn't respond that way. I do cheerfully answer for myself. That's how we often defend ourselves against false accusations. But I can tell you from experience, negative emotions are never effective. Negative emotions are never effective. All right? And uh, Proverbs fifteen eighteen, A wrathful man stirreth up strife, but he that is slow to anger appeaseth strife. So much better if we can keep anger out of our life. So how could Paul answer cheerfully? Well, there's several reasons. Number one, He knew he had a good conscience in the matter. Remember verse 16, he said, I'm always a, a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Paul knew he was innocent, so why get all worked up about it? Think about that simplicity there. Why get all fired up about something? He knew he was innocent. He knew this was all a bunch of garbage they were bringing. Again, if he had flown off the handle, they'd have had him right where they wanted him. If he had gotten angry and started screaming and cursing at them, They would have had Paul, then he would have looked seditious, wouldn't he? Then he would have looked like he was a guilty man. But Paul was very calm and cheerfully answered for himself. Number one, because he knew he had a clear conscience. Number two, Paul knew that God was in control. You remember back in Acts 23 when we were going through and we talked about the very first night Paul was in the middle of all this garbage. He had been arrested unfairly. He had been falsely accused. And he's in prison and the Lord visits him. If you jump back Acts 23, verse number 11, and the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also in Rome. <laughs> hey, praise God, it doesn't matter if the whole world is against you, if God is with you. And the Lord, the Bible says, stood by him. Praise, praise God for that. Paul didn't quite know how this was all going to turn out, but the Lord stood by him. He didn't know uh, wh- what the outcome would be, but he knew the Lord stood by him. And Paul did know that he had a job to do and that nothing would surprise God. Paul knew that God was in control. And God is in control in our lives if we uh, have surrendered and are obedient to him. Uh, Like Paul, we also have a certainty that God has a duty for us to do. And even in the jailhouse experiences of life, put your focus on your job, not God's job. Oh my, we're constantly caught up. Wanting to do God's job for. Him. Oh, Lord, you don't know what you're doing. God, you've messed up here. Just let God do his job. You be worried about your duty. So, when falsely accused, listen carefully to your accusers. Respond humbly with the truth. That's the substance. Uh, if you're totally innocent, refrain from anger and trust the truth. That's the spirit. Paul's substance and his spirit. And then finally. The third thing we do, or falsely accuse, leave the situation in God's hand. What happened? Well, Paul presented his case. The evidence was clear. He's obviously innocent, as anyone can see. The Jews, with their high-powered lawyer, didn't have a case. In verse 22, the Bible says, and When Felix heard these things, having more perfect knowledge of that way, he deferred them and said, When Lysias, the chief captain, shall come down, I will know the utmost of your matter, the uttermost of your matter.'" Once Lysias came and gave his version of the events, Paul should have been acquitted immediately. But he wasn't. In fact, the Bible tells us that for the next two years, he remained a prisoner of Felix. Uh, Paul mentioned in verse 17 that he brought a gift a financial gift to the Jews. And Felix must have figured that Paul would have some of that money laying around, I guess, because in verse 26 it says he kept Paul hoping to get a bribe from him at one point. You know, sometimes... No matter what you do to clear yourself, no matter how innocent you are, no matter how proven innocent you are, you may still be unjustly treated. And Paul was. He was remained a prisoner for two years. And in times like these, it is the most difficult to understand God's purpose. And it is in times like these, it is the most important to leave it in God's hands. The Bible says, Proverbs 3.5, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not to thine own understanding. It is then that you have to claim, Romans eight twenty eight all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. It is then that you realize that God must have a reason for what's happening. I think this is both best illustrated in the life of Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph, you know the story well, unfairly treated by his brothers. Then he's sold into slavery by those very brothers, the ones that should have loved him and sold him. Uh, to a secular slave trade. He was uh, sold then as a slave to Potiphar. Then he was unjustly accused and thrown in prison for a crime that he did not commit. And he spent years there. Yet you don't ever see a hint, as you look at the life of Joseph, of a complaint, of resentment, of anger, or any of that. Joseph accepts, somehow, was able to trust in the Lord in spite of his unfairness and unjust, or unfair treatment, unjust treatment. And you know the rest of the story. Then he came to power. Not long after that, here trot up his brothers asking for food. <laughs> I'd love to be there for that moment. Joseph looks out the window and sees his brothers coming up and they're going to beg him for food. Now, now they're in the palm of his hands. Now Joseph can do whatever he wants with them. He can, he can have them killed if he wants to. He can do whatever he wants with them. He is that powerful. The very ones that were responsible for all his suffering. He now has a chance to get even with them. But that wasn't Joseph's response. Here's what he told him in Genesis 50 verse 20. But as for you, you thought evil against me. But God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. Joseph did not justify their evil actions. But he did recognize that when bad things happen to good people, often God will use that very unfortunate incident to bring about something good and some higher purpose. Paul realized this, and he just waited on the Lord. Now, in closing here, verse 24 and verse 25 are fascinating. If you'll go to those verses with me. Acts chapter 24, verse number 24 and 25. Felix calls a meeting. And after certain days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time when I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. So get the picture here. Paul's in jail unfairly. He's imprisoned. He shouldn't be. He was proven innocent in a court of law, uh, essentially. They all knew they were trumped up charges. Felix said so himself. And yet he's still in prison. Now he meets with Felix. And here is a chance for him to beg his case. Did Paul do that? Did he talk about the injustice? Did he beg for his release? Did he tell Felix how unfair his treatment was? He did not. Paul knew that God was in control. And so what did Paul do? Paul did his job. And he witnessed to Felix. He gave him the gospel. He reasoned with him about what... Uh, he believed in about Jesus Christ and all those things. He did his job, his duty. He shared the gospel with Felix and his wife. We do not know the results of what came from, from that. We don't know uh, whatever happened to Felix and or his wife after that. We know he was seriously touched here at this moment by that message of the gospel. That is all in God's hands. But Paul, in a time when he could have made it all about himself, still was in the midst of doing his duty. The very best thing we can do, friends, when we are falsely accused, wrongly treated, is just keep on serving God and being faithful. That's what Paul was doing here. I ask you tonight, have you come to a place in your life of total surrender, even in midst of a terrible injustice? Paul in Romans 12.1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Paul wrote those words around 67 to 68 AD. He lived that out here in Acts 24 several months later. After he wrote those words, uh, Paul didn't only write them, Paul lived them. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. God, if you want me in this jail right now, I don't understand it. But I'll tell you what I will do. I'll continue to do my duty. And if we are the recipients of unfair treatment, unjust accusation, or any type of situation like that, would we, like Paul, focus on our duty? We still have a work to do. How about you tonight? Are you surrendered to the Lord in your life? Have you presented your body as a living sacrifice to the Lord? When we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, what we're really saying is, God, here it is. Here I am. You can do with me as you will. And unfortunate things will happen. Sometimes bad things will happen. And sometimes uncomfortable things will happen. And you will uh, feel attacked or you'll feel like it's unfair what's happening to you. You let God do his job and you just focus on your duty. So if falsely accused, let's review. Do three things. Listen carefully to your accusers with a humble spirit and make anything wrong right. Number two, if you're innocent, cheerfully make your defense. Leave your emotions at the door. Don't get angry. Don't get spiteful. Don't get vengeful. But make your defense. And finally, trust the Lord. Surrender to him. Leave the situation in his hands. Because not always, as it was with Paul, Is there a Hollywood, Disney, happy ending where they all live happily ever after? That doesn't always happen. Sometimes it seems like nobody wins. Sometimes it seems like you most definitely lose. But we got to leave that in God's hands. We do our part. We are faithful in our areas that God's entrusted us with. He'll take care of the rest. Amen? It's a help, isn't it? See how Paul responded to those areas. Thank you, Father.